the story of a boy who dreamed of becoming a man, but dreamed up a monster instead. It has hunted you since the summer of 1994, back when we confessed who we were through mixtapes, when every movie at the video store had dirty heads. You were 13 and thought you knew who you were, only the shadow with too many teeth knew you better. It still does, and it won't stop, not until you come home, back to where it all began. Part cosmic horror, part coming of age story, Dirty Heads is a terrifying read from the author of House of Size, The Fallen Boys, and A Place for Sinners. Out now. Starting Saturday, 11th of September, Season 2 of Author Question Time on Ross Jeffrey's YouTube channel. Join Bram Stoker Award-nominated author Ross Jeffrey alongside co-hosts T.C. Parker and Kev Harrison as they discuss books, writing, and creativity with huge names in horror and dark fiction, like Josh Malaman and Alan Baxter, alongside some of the most exciting new voices on the indie scene, such as Eric LaRocca, Hayley Piper, and Laurel Hightower. Come, bring your questions, join in the conversation. Looking for your next horror writing podcast fix? The This Is Horror podcast for readers, writers, and creators is the ultimate show for writing advice, tips, and a personal look into the lives of all your favorite authors. This is Horror Podcast. Listen in to long-form conversations with some of the best writers and creatives on the planet. Over 400 episodes with masters of horror such as Joe R. Lansdale, Chuck Palahniuk, Josh Mallerman, Joe Hill, Charlene Harris, Craig Clevenger, Ellen Datlow, Kathy Koja, and many more. The This Is Horror Podcast. Listen in at www.thisishorror.com. That's the This Is Horror Podcast for readers, writers, and creators. Everybody, thank you for joining us on another episode. Before we start, just want to remind you, our good friend, Michael David Wilson at This Is Horror, he has a writing in editing consultation. He has worked with people such as Josh Mellerman and David Moody. For more information, go to michaeldavidwilson.co.uk slash editing. From the host of This Is Horror podcast comes a dark thriller of obsession, paranoia, and voyeurism. After relocating to a small coastal town, Brian discovers a hole that gazes into his neighbor's bedroom. Every night she dances and he peeps. Same song, same time, same wild and mesmerizing dance. But soon Brian suspects he's not the only one watching and she's not the only one being watched. They're watching is the Wicker Man meets Body Double with a splash of Suspiria. They're watching by Michael David Wilson and Bob Pastorella is available from thisishorror.co.uk, Amazon, and wherever good books are sold. And welcome to Dead Headspace, a part of Silver Shamrock's Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead. 
re-exhumed classic paperbacks for the new generation. Speaking of which, episode seven drops in less than two weeks as December 1st, where Brennan and I, Ken, could not make it. We talk with Chuck Palahniuk. He joins us to break down the novel and film adaptation of Rosemary's Baby. Lots of crazy insight that we got from him on that. So stay tuned for that. And I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. Today, we are talking to Christopher Golden, the author of Rhoda Bones, The Ghosts of Who You Were, amongst many others. Say hi, Christopher. How are you? Pretty good, man. And uh, we'll just dive in the deep end. What got you into horror? <laughs> uh, birth, I think. You know, <laughs> the process of being born into this world. Um. You know, I don't remember a time when I didn't love the weird shit. I, um, you know, when I was a kid, I remember uh, seeing an episode of The Twilight Zone uh, in, you know, obviously reruns at that point. And I think it was the, I think it's called The Swimming Hole. Um, and it's a, it's an episode about these two little kids in like Appalachia or something who go swimming. And when they come up out of the water... They're in like an alternate world where uh, there's a sweet old lady in the cabin by the cottage by the, the lake and all this stuff. And it, in, in, in a weird way, it sort of reminds me of Coraline, Neil Gaiman's Coraline in a, hmm. weird, in a weird way. But in any case, I was really young when I saw that and uh, really young when I saw Frankenstein for the first time. Uh, I think it was probably seven. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I just, I don't know, man, you know, like in comics, in movies and stuff like that, I just always gravitated toward weird and spooky and just love it. Yeah, just uh, that's a great answer. Uh, Twilight Zone, I got hooked on that as a, at a younger age, too. And um, he's not super well known, but my godfather, he was an actor in the indie scene in uh, the greater Boston area for the late Nine, 90s early aughts and uh he just gave me a lot of lessons and one of them was uh you know older older film and tv and twilight zone was my favorite and uh i just read this really interesting thing that his daughter said about uh, rod sterling's daughter where rod sterling wants you write about certain social commentary but he couldn't get away with it back then um on tv so he guised it as what a lot of us guys it as is monsters or the otherworldly creatures. Um, I don't really have a follow-up question to that. So Brennan, why don't you jump in, buddy? Sure. Uh, I, you know, I loved hearing how it was just kind of all the mediums. It's it, it, all the weird shit approached you from every angle. And, you know, since you've become kind of known as a creator in, you know, a, a variety of mediums, I wonder if there was really one that grabbed you at an early age or if it was just you, you took it from everywhere. Um, it really did come from all directions in that way. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, in each instance, I mean, I remember uh, Kolchak the Night Stalker wouldn't have been the first scary thing that I saw on TV. And I was too young when it first ran, um, but it was rerun. It only ran for 20 episodes. I don't know if you guys, you guys are both pretty young. I don't know if you've seen the show. I know it's both, but I haven't seen it. It sounds yeah. awesome. So though. you should seek it out. There were two TV movies 
uh, one called The Night Stalker and one called The Night Strangler, written by Richard Matheson. Um, and then there was a 20-episode single-season series, and that show changed my life. My dad, uh, my dad would come in. I, he agreed to come in. I'd go to bed at like 8.30, and it was on in reruns that year. So the year after it ran in, in first run, it ran in reruns at 11 o'clock at night. And I saw an ad for it and I begged him. And so I would go to bed at like 8.30 or 9 o'clock, whatever my bedtime was. And I was probably, I could figure it out, but I was probably like nine. And my dad would wake me up at like 10 minutes to 11 to watch Kolchak the Night Stalker. And then I'd go back to bed. (laughs) And so that for TV and also, you know, um, in those days, there were, and again, I, I'm 54 years old, which is old enough to remember what it was like before cable. So before cable in Boston, we had, you know, the three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and we had two local television stations, Channel 56 and Channel 38. And Channel 38 had Creature Feature and Creature Double Feature, which was on the weekends, they would show monster movies, horror movies. It might be Universal Monsters, it might be Hammer Dracula movies or whatever. It might be the brain that wouldn't die. It was just such a wide variety of just weird shit. And so as a kid, I watched those too on local. My brother's two years older than I am. So we'd watch those. Um, Kolchak was a huge influence. And then around the same age, maybe a little bit older, we were down the Cape um, with our parents on vacation And, you know, I had read some comics that my uncle had had and other things. And so I'd read, I'd certainly had access to various Marvel comics. But my brother and I went to this general store where we were able to buy our own comics for the first time. And I was little, but I know that one of the very first comics I bought was Tomb of Dracula number 15. And, uh, that remains that series remains my favorite comic book series of all time. And certainly I think the best horror comic that anyone's ever done. Um, And so for me, uh, it was all of it, you know, it was movies and TV and, um, and then books, of course, once I started reading, it was like doc Savage novels had elements of horror. And I was reading those very young. And pretty quickly thereafter, I found Stephen King for the first time. I was young. And uh, I remember Charles L. Grant edited this series of phenomenal horror anthologies. And I remember being young, and I don't remember what year it was, but we were down the Cape. It might have been the same trip. And on a spinner rack in a drugstore was a copy of a Charlie Grant anthology called Terrors. And the cover of Terrors is like the most garish thing you could ever possibly ask for. It's a shit cover. Um, It's just like blood and a really fake plastic looking skeleton hand coming up out of the blood. That's the cover. But um, so again, it was like, it it wasn't one thing. It was like all of these things sort of hitting and within the same like couple of years space. And from that point on, it was just, my thing and i've written i've written in all kinds of genres but i always say that the horror people are my people you know because that's where my heart is definitely hear that man that's um 
that's why we talk to so many people that write in this genre. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at the cover now. That's <laughs> yeah, it's pretty horrible. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> so, Brent, take over. I feel like you got something to talk about. Yeah, I mean, with that mix of media, I, I'm kind of curious at which point, uh, at what point did you uh, start to dabble in, you know, becoming a creator and what was really first for you? Um, so I started writing short stories in high school. Um, I, I guess I started dabbling really maybe in the eighth grade, but I started writing short stories for the first time in high school. Um, and I had an English teacher who, um, encouraged me, you know, thought it was, thought what I was doing was worthwhile. Um, and then my mother, um, who passed away earlier this year, uh, was encouraging. And she had a friend who was an agent, but the agent dealt with like, you know, people who wrote articles for magazines, people who wrote nonfiction for magazines. Um, and she was in the Boston area, but, um, at my mother's request, she took a couple of short stories I wrote when I was like 15 and sent them out to various magazines. And I still have all the rejections. And of course they were all rejected, but a lot of the rejections from uh, Ellery Queen and, and Playboy and uh, Alfred Hitchcock's mystery magazine and um, stuff like that. A lot of them came back with, with personal notes, basically saying, you know, look, these are not for us, but this kid's only 15 and he really shows a lot of promise. And so at that age, that was huge, right? To get these people who are professional to say, yeah, look, you can't do this yet, but maybe you could. Mm. Um, and so <clears throat> weirdly also at high school, I wanted to go to film school um, to direct movies and uh I also was, you know, let me back up a second. I, I go, I'm a tangent king. Okay. So um, we grew up with the illusion of being sort of upper middle class, but my parents were divorced. My, they were separated when I was really young. They were divorced when I was like 11. And um, so there were, you know, we lived in a, a suburban middle-class neighborhood, but my mom worked like 70 hours a week. We had our, our, um, heat turned off a couple of times, electricity turned off, you know, so it was a, it was a weird thing. So it was like this sort of odd struggle going on beneath the surface, but it looked like the sort of atypical or typical, I should say, like suburban life in the seventies, you know, and, and early eighties. Um, so I say that because I wanted to go to film school. But my attitude was, from a practical standpoint, if I was going to go to college, I needed to go to the best school that would take me, get the best education I could get, because that was going to be my future. Um, so my thought was I was going to go to film school as graduate school after college, if I could do that. Um, but it was while I was in college, I started taking creative writing classes, and I still continued to write. And while I was in college, I was like, this is what I really want to do. I really don't want to make films because I, I don't like the idea of getting, I'm not good with authority. I don't like being told what to do. And so when you're writing, 
you know, 99% of the time, what you're writing is up to you. Right. And, um, and so I just, I just was writing and then, uh, I was a, a senior, the fall of my senior year in college. And I, I read, uh, Skip Inspector's Light at the End. And they were really the first, you know, we're not the same generation, but, but they're not that far ahead of me age wise. Um, and so I was reading light at the end and the dialogue and the language was so different from the stuff I had grown up reading that I was like, I could do this. I could actually do this. And I had written a bunch of short stories and I thought, well, if I wrote like 18 short stories, that's like the same thing as writing a novel, really. It's just that you wrote 18 short stories that are all linked together and suddenly you're, you have a whole book. And, and that thought process was the thing that triggered me to actually start my first novel. So your first novel that you wrote, whether, whether it got published or not, was it a novel or did you end up just uh, collecting your short stories and trying it that way? No, no, it was, <clears throat> it was a novel. I started writing my first novel when I was a senior uh, in college. And um, I'd written about 125 pages when I went to, I had entered my very first paid writing was that year, my senior year, I interviewed Craig Shaw Gardner um, uh, for Starlog magazine. I had reached out to Craig and basically said, would you be willing to do this? So with that, I approached Starlog and um, they were like, well, yeah, like, give it a shot, see what you can do. And, and I did, and they paid me. And, um, and so that was my first paid piece, but Craig was the one who said, Hey, you know, there's this tiny little convention in Rhode Island every summer. You kind of have to know people because otherwise you won't know it exists. Um, and so I went to Nikon nine, um, which would have been 1989. That was the year I graduated from college that summer. And at Nikon nine, I met, I had gone to a convention previously and briefly met Charlie Grant for like two seconds. And I think I met Rick Howdler for like two seconds, but like in passing, not in any kind of like, but I met um, that first, I don't know how, how steeped you guys are in this stuff, but I met um, Skip Inspector. I met F. Paul Wilson. I met Rick Howdler again. I met Charlie Grant again. I met Doug Winter. Um, I met, Ginger Buchanan, who would become my first editor. I met Laurie Perkins, who would become my first agent. I met, I don't know if I said Tom Ottolioni, met Elizabeth Massey. I met um, John McElveen, who now is the guy behind Haverhill House. I met like all these people I could list, Yvonne Navarro and, uh, you know, just tons of people who were, um, I met Phil Nutman, who uh, became a good friend of mine early on in those years. Book of the Dead had just come out. So it was about to come out and I can't remember. Um, so that was huge. I mean, it was absolutely huge that, that moment. And so because of that weekend that ended up with me having Laurie Perkins read my first 125 pages and Laurie's response was, you've been in school too long. You've been in too many creative writing classes, go read this, go read this. And then she actually had me print up what I had done, set it beside me. And after having done this, like 
go go study the elements of style by Strunk and White. Go study this other book and then print it up and start over. So I literally rewrote the entire first 125 pages with it next to me so I could remember kind of the good bits. And I just started from scratch. Uh, and I gave that to her when I was done with it, with an outline for the rest. Um, and she sold it to Ginger Buchanan. That was my first novel. And uh, that was published in 1994. Uh, Excellent. Yeah, that that's that's amazing. Um, just a side note, I thought it was funny because you brought up John Skip a few times. He's the last guest we're going to have on for this season. Um, there's... I knew most of the names, but Brennan, what about you, man? There is some that I'm not familiar with. Yeah, but you know, honestly, that leads me into a question that I'm really interested to get your take on. I mean, it's reading between the lines. It sounds like you really value the importance of uh, Nikon, especially, but cons in general uh, for making connections and getting to know people. I wonder, do you think that's changed in the last 30 years? No, with the advent of like social media or no, I mean, social media certainly helps, but it's not the same, you know, I mean, it, it's, it definitely helps. Um, but look, uh, it, it, here's, here's why it helps because then if you go meet somebody, if you go to a convention, there are a whole bunch of people you've pre-met, <laughs> you've established a relationship with them and then you meet them in person. But here's what I want to say about conventions. And this is the advice I give all the time. Um, yes, you're going to conventions to network, to schmooze, to meet people, call it whatever you want to call it. But you're going to establish relationships that are based on mutual interest, mutual admiration, uh, potentially uh, uh, mutual self-interest, right? Um, but never on bullshit. And I'll tell you, I mean, I have never been so turned off as being at a convention and being stalked is the wrong word. Cornered is the wrong word, but you get my meaning. By, it's always men, too. By male authors who, um, who just want something from you. They don't give a shit about you. They just want something from you. They're not there to make friends or to uh, create associations or to create my friends and I in this business. And, and they're, they're of all walks of life and they're all levels of, of achievement. Um, but we, when we talk, we talk about how the rising tide lifts all boats. You've heard that expression, right? What's good for me is good for my friends and vice versa. Um, and what I, I just, I can't stand it when you've got somebody who doesn't realize that there's more to it than uh, just like go suck up to somebody and try to, and I've had, I had a situation with, uh, and I won't name her, with a young woman who I was, um, I guess, sort of mentoring, but certainly supporting, giving feedback to editing some of her work. And there was a guy friend of hers who was also a writer who was driving her insane and then driving me insane when I ran into him at a couple conventions because he didn't understand why I was helping her and not him. <laughs> well, could it be because 
I'd read her work and really thought she had promise and I liked her. Do you know what I mean? Like it just, and I, so I can't stand that. So when you go to these conventions, you're there to get to know people and to understand the business and educate yourself about publishing and become a better writer. And along the way, you will create these relationships. But the other stuff has to come first. The relationships are a natural outcropping of the other things you're supposed to be there for. You know, so anyway. I I, you know, and I believe you're doing it yourself a disservice if you go to a con strictly with that attitude in mind. If you think of your, or if I, I, if I think of my day-to-day life, I have a lot of human interaction and a lot of it is with kids that I can't really talk about the books I'm reading, not in great detail. Right. Um, and <laughs> the adults that I have my daily interaction with, they, they're not, they're not interested. They don't care, you know, and here you're in a setting where you're surrounded by like-minded people who dig the same movies, the same TV shows, right. the books, the comics that you do take advantage of that. Right. Um, exactly. You know, my, my two cents anyway. <laughs> yeah, I went to my first con uh, this summer, um, Scares of Care, because uh, I was a huge fan of Brian Keene's uh, podcast when that was on. And, and then you met him and you were like, oh, my God, this guy. No. <laughs> we all had masks on. So Brian walked up. I was talking to, I think, Jonathan Jans and Gabino. And yeah. uh, Keene comes up. He says something. And I'm like, oh, who's Brian Keene? He he looked at me and he gave me the look I thought he'd give me. He's like, are you fucking kidding me? And then I was like, Hey, Brian, it's me, Pat. And he goes, Oh, hi. It's like, nice to meet you. But um, yeah, if that's the advice he used to give. That's the advice that everyone that's established gives. I've noticed that also you guys give, you, you help out those that you, like you said, you believe in Catriona Ward was, one of them. Um, I know that you have offered great public support uh, of her two recent books, and I've only read Needless Street, but that that's just <laughs> you. Ain't, you ain't kidding me. That that book, especially if it becomes a film adaptation or some TV yeah. series, she's just gonna keep rolling with the yeah. times. You called her the modern day Shirley Jackson, I believe. Yeah, yeah, or something that's, like that. Yeah, I mean, look, fair. I think I said the twenty first century. Shirley Jackson, or the Shirley Jackson of the 21st, or something like that. But look, here's the thing, right? With a situation like Katrina Ward, it bugged the crap out of me because, and again, great for her, and I adore her, but um, uh, once upon a time, a million years ago, in the like early 90s, I was a big fan of uh, Melissa Etheridge, right? And Melissa Etheridge was not an artist that like everybody knew. And then she had a couple of massive hits and then everybody knew who she was. And her next album was called your little secret. And it was a double entendre because she'd come out as a lesbian at the time. And also it was a reference to the fact that there were so many of us who'd been her fans who like for us, she was our little secret, but now she wasn't our little secret anymore. And that's how I felt with like Katrina Ward's, I read the last house on needless street and it's so good. And then within like a week of me having given her uh, this blurb and I was all proud of myself, like I'm going to get people to read this woman's book. And, uh, and then Joe Hill blurbed her and then like Stephen King posted about it. And I was like, 
you know. But no, I'm thrilled for her. I'm I'm so happy for her, and she deserves all of it. She's so talented. You know, look, um, I'm not going to say that all horror that I read falls into two major categories, but a lot of it falls into sort of two categories. There's a sort of category where it's like, this is familiar ground that's being trod, but it's being done really, really well and with a different sort of voice and with something that, that some, somebody's bringing something new to it, which you always need to try to do. Mm-hmm. And then you have stuff you literally haven't read before. And that other category is very different. And The Last House on Needless Street is something I had not read before. Me either, man. <laughs> and I, right, exactly. And so how often does that happen? How often do you get something you like, never read anything like that before? Not, not, we All three of us read a lot, not right. often. Yeah. So, so again, and yeah, look, I'm, I'm always trying to, um, you know, for my own sake as a reader also, I'm always trying to reach out and, uh, and find something new or different for me. Also this year, I read, uh, V Castro for the first time. Um, her book, the queen of the cicadas mm-hmm. is so good. Uh, and I, I try to explain it to people and I say like, it's sort of, she's a, a Mexican born, but lives in, uh, lives in London. And, um, and it's, it's sort of like a, um, a Mexican American border story, urban horror story that, it, or no urban myths or urban legend story, not urban. Yeah. So urban legend story that, if you liked Candyman and the original story, you'll love this. I mean, that's like how I'm like, I, I'm totally there. And I read it. And I was like, see, I haven't read this before. I love this book. <laughs> and while it does have things that are familiar in it, it's not like everything else that I've read, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so more and more, I'm just sort of seeking out stuff like that. And we talked before we started, we started recording the episode um that we were talking about a book that you've read brennan's read i'm actually in the middle of the first three volumes for the first time but the books of blood by clive barker um the only author that i've come across recently is eric LaRocca. um to me he's the modern day clive barker he's just the shit he yeah. writes, because we're talking about things that you've never read before. A great example would be his novella. Um, things have gone worse since we last spoke. Like that. Yeah, that, that's yeah. Just- I I actually read that recently. I I uh, Izzy Lee introduced uh, me to Eric, and um, um, we were all one night. We were at Bracken McLeod's house, Bracken and Izzy and Paul and Eric, Paul Tremblay and Eric, and. Um, and that's so we met him then. Great guy, mm-hmm. really like him. And um, and then uh, I should say really like them, I believe. Um, and got a copy of the of the novella then, and I think it's excellent. Um, but going back to Clive and Eric shows a ton of promise, and I think he's got a, they've got a, a massive future ahead. But um, going back to Clive Barker. Clive Barker's Books of Blood remain, in, in my opinion, and I know, look, I love Weave World. It's one of my favorite novels. Mm. I loved Imagica. 
Um, I think Books of Blood is the best thing Clive Barker ever did. And, or it has ever done, I should say. And I still think no one has come along since Clive Barker, you know, all the years since Clive Barker, to come out of the gate the way Clive Barker did. Was that his first? That was the first thing that was released in the United States was the Books of Blood. Holy shit. So that came out and all bets were off. I'd never read anything like it. Yeah. Wow. Um, And I I still have never seen anybody who was able to write such transgression so beautifully. You know, it's just extraordinary. And In the Hills, the Cities is still one of the best horror short stories ever written, I think. Yeah. um, For like the diehard horror fans uh, on the book side of things, that's definitely the of short stories that one I hear more often than not. I liked uh, just for the pure sake of I've never seen a possession story like this. The uh, was it the Yattering and Jack? Yeah, <laughs> it's so weird, but it's it's funny. It's funny. Yeah. It's bizarre. Um, it's like- funny and it's awful at the same time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, just like, it's like, oh, my God. Um, no. And that's the thing. Look, we can't, you know, a lot of the stuff that Clive did after that, I mean, his, it was always, is always so incredibly ambitious. I mean, his ambition is like nobody else's mm-hmm. um, as a storyteller, but his short stories in those days, because they had to be short stories. Um, it's just one punch in the face after another. And, and I mean, again, I just don't feel like there's been anyone who has, who has reached that pinnacle. Um, I can't, I can't think of one for, for whatever reason, you know, I never think of uh, the books of blood as like, you know, a, a straightforward collection, you know, maybe I'm being like melodramatic here, but it, it's an event. It's, it, it just doesn't, if you hold it up next to other collections, it just very much feels like a pinnacle, like, Again, this is this is his introduction to American audiences, and it, he just kind of mic drops at the end there. There, you know, post right. post volume six, there is no, and now here's another Clive Barker collection. Right. So, no, we're going to leave it there. <laughs> but again, also, it wasn't, you know, what people don't understand. I think if you go back and read it now, it reads like a best of. It's not a best of. Yeah. You know, everything Clive Barker did was his best of, you know, in those <laughs> days. And I think, you know, he his novels, for me, have sometimes been hit or miss. Um, they're always great reading, but they're there. They, for me, they don't always hit the target I think they're aimed at. I don't, you know, so, so much of it I love. Um, but, uh, but the Books of Blood, I mean, Damnation Game is great and Magic is great. We World is great. Uh, the Great and Secret Show, I love. You know, we could go on. I'm a big fan of Sacrament. A lot of people didn't like that book, but I loved it. Um, but the Books of Blood is still, it's like its like planting your flag at the top of the mountain and saying, come take it. And I don't think anybody ever has. Um, you know, there are great collections, obviously. I mean, uh, I wrote the introduction to Joe Hill's 20th Century Ghosts. Um, and that's about as close as I've seen anybody come as far as like coming out of the gate. 
Mm. You know, I don't know if you've read it, but if you haven't read it, it's an extraordinary collection. Um, I'm a huge fan of Joe's, but I, I tend to favor his shorter work. I think Strange Weather, his book of, of novellas, um, is my favorite thing he's done since 20th Century Ghosts. So it's like, um, you know, but yeah, I'm, I don't know. Anyway. And I find it pretty neat that you guys, I don't want to make assumptions, but it seems like you're friends with him. I know, I think Bracken said he was. Um, when I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like you, Joe, and, and Brian on an episode of the horror show. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was you three. Um, that was, I think, what was that a year ago already? Uh, I think it was right before COVID. So it was like probably almost two years ago. Holy mm-hmm. shit. Okay. <laughs> well, it was COVID uh, time though. It's like uh, all elastic. I just really love that because he, he, he's in, I mean, all three of you guys are very successful, but it's just really neat hearing the three of you talk and you guys are just at the end of the day, going back to our original conversation about trying to be some people trying to be selfish. It's like, you guys are just people, you know, you're just trying to live your lives. And and I think that's kind of a great uh, and important takeaway that for newer authors, sometimes we try to throw reminders out there that the approach of every relationship should just start from there. You're both people. Let's talk about what we like. Um, Weird segue, but we were talking about collections. Let's jump into the ghosts of who you were because you have a really neat intro. Um, And I want to know, did it take like kind of a long time to, to deliver in that way? Uh, When you wrote the intro, basically, for those that haven't read it yet, you said, I'm not really someone that writes a lot of short stories. Here's what they are. Um, At the end, you give our our notes for each short story. Um, Did you give a lot of thought about that, the introduction itself? A little bit, you know, because I feel like the older I get, the more honest I am, Hmm. more, the less concerned I become about how it looks, uh, you know, or, you know, my, my place in the, in the scheme of things or whatever it might be. Um, and I just want to always sort of be honest and blunt about stuff like this. You know, when I started out, I was writing horror short stories. None of them were any good. Um, I did submit a couple stories early on to cemetery dance. They were rightly rejected. Um, I, I submitted, a couple short stories to, or one short story to a Charlie Grant shadows anthology Mm. that was rejected. Um, And beyond that, I don't think as a, you know, when I was older, aside from being 15, when I was older, I don't think I submitted any short stories at that point. Um, And and then I started writing the novel because I was like, I don't know. I felt that challenge. It felt more me. Um, It felt more like, the kind of storytelling I wanted to do. And weirdly, I was more comfortable with that idea of structuring that narrative arc than in trying to do the quick hit of a short story. Because um, if you screw up a scene in a novel, the next scene is, you know, you turn the page and the next scene is there. You hope you don't (laughs) screw up a scene. But if you do, like, you know, people move on to the next thing. And short stories, you've got one option, you know, one, one shot, you know, 
And so um, my feeling was that if you go back and find a copy of my first collection, which is called The Secret Backs of Things, The Secret Backs of Things basically collects everything I had done in short fiction up until the point of that publication. Oh, wow. And uh, that means that some of the stuff in there is crap. And then, I mean, you know, I think it's crap. Yeah, I got you. (laughs) I let other people decide if it's crap or not. (laughs) When I did my second collection, um, which was called Tell My Sorrows to the Stones, I pulled, I think, three stories from the secret backs of things into that collection because I felt like you could put almost like uh, you could draw a line uh, in my short story writing to the point where I kind of figured out, I felt figured out how to write a halfway decent short story. And that included those three stories. So I pulled those into Tell My Sorrows to the Stones. Um, and I think Tell My Sorrows to the Stones is is a, is in my opinion, it's a pretty decent collection of horror stories. Um, but I always say, and I, I advise you guys and everybody else to do the same thing. Let other people decide the quality of something. I had a, I had an editor one time tell me um, I always rubbed in the wrong way because I always seem to be like, um, I don't know, I don't know what word he used. It wasn't arrogant, but it was something along those lines and I said to him, I had to pause and say, I know I've suggested to you to read my work, but have I ever said anything about the quality of the work? The whole point in asking you to read it is for you to make up your own mind of what you think about it. Right. You know, so I have a view of what I think I've done that's good, what I think I've done that's really mediocre, what I think I've done that maybe is a little bit better than good. Um I also think that, you know, as a writer, it's very easy to tell who you're significantly better at it than. And it's very easy to tell who you're nowhere near as good as. <laughs> but there's a whole range in there of people who may be better than you want on a day, maybe really a lot better than you on a day and maybe worse than you on another day, or maybe on, maybe every day they're better than you are, that you shouldn't be going around making claims about your own work. You know, like I have said a million times since the beginning of my career, I look at Peter Straub and let's use a, let's use a, a current example. My buddy Rio Ewers is absolutely a better writer than I will ever be. Absolutely. Hands down, never going to happen. I, it's just the way it is. So, um, And I'm very comfortable saying that, but there are lots of people who are in that other range that I'm, I'm not going to compare myself to myself to them because today might be different. Tomorrow might be different. Um, And it really is up to the reader. It's up. And also readers like different things. There are people who, who love what I do, who hate what much better writers than I am. Right. (laughs) This is no accounting for taste. So my point is, these are the, my feelings about my stories not what I expect other people to feel about them. Um, which leads us to the ghost of who you were. And, and I feel like um, there are a couple of stories in there that I'm not hugely fond of, but I think they're pretty good. And ironically, the first couple of people who read the collection 
the thing I liked the least was the thing they liked the best. <laughs> and that's, that stuff is always going to happen. And, yeah. but, but, but the point of, of writing the introduction to the book was basically to say, I think I reached a point where I finally can write a short story that I feel comfortable showing people. And like, for instance, it's not in the book because it's my most recent story. But um, I wrote a short story called The God Bag that, that appears in uh, Mark Morris's brand new anthology, which is called uh, Beyond the Veil or something like that. Um, and for the first time in my entire career, I actually did point out to uh, Ellen Datlow the existence of this story. Um, <laughs> And, and if you guys have any idea what I usually think of my own work, you'd realize how absurd that is, that I was like, that I think I like this story enough to say, hey, Ellen, you're probably not going to go with this story. You're probably just going to go, yeah, it's fine. Go away. Um, but maybe take a look at it. And uh, I've never done that before. Chances are I'll never do it again. <laughs> um, but uh, but for me to get to the point where I thought, you know, that I thought that positively about one of my own short stories is a big deal. Um, and so, yeah, it's all progress. It's all evolution. That's awesome. And uh, real quick, I think we can all agree that Peter Straub's like one of the greatest ever, one of the greatest writers to ever exists. Even if you don't like his stories per se, like, it's yeah. beautiful. We're talking about the quality of the writing itself. Yes. Okay. Yes. Then right? that. I mean, you can't. If you read a page of Peter's, like I'll read, a, I'll read something of Peter's, and I'll be like, I would never even attempt that. <laughs> I wouldn't even attempt to write, to try to write the way that Peter writes. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm not. One of my favorite novels of all time is Shadowland by Peter, mm. and and the way that Peter writes his style, his voice, the, the, the erudition evident in his prose, not a chance, you know, it's not a chance. It's like, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's like seeing, you know, Sean White do some tricks in the winter Olympics and just going, nah, <laughs> that is something nah. I didn't think that you would bring up as Sean White. I used to play that video game. After him. Yeah. Um, so as far as your collection goes, Wendy Darling was one of my favorites, man. Um, thank you. Yeah, I just tell me if this spoils it. I don't think it does, but it does something to I'll wear it this way, a familiar fairy tale that adds elemental uh, elements of horror, and I thought it did it really well. I and well, it's it, called it, Wendy Darling. Mind. I think you're okay. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> the Peter Pan riff. Yep. Um, Jonathan Mayberry had edited an anthology of stories based on um, sort of classic folk songs, and uh, and I had I had chosen this one, and I basically merged the song, merged the story of the song with a what if. Wendy Darling was real. Um, and, you know, 
I am irritated though because there's a book out now called Wendy Darling, the same way Wendy, comma, Darling. I didn't know that. And I'm sure that they didn't copy me. I mean, it's a it's a pretty obvious like leap from, you know, uh, you know, it's also a, a a hidden reference to the shining. So man, I selfishly I thought of something that made me laugh though. It's not why that was one of my favorites in the collection, but just last year. I had my first professional sale and it was, gotcha. uh, it, thanks man. It was a horror. <laughs> it was a horror version of Peter Pan. <laughs> there you go. Oh, listen, uh, you know, I, I wrote a, uh, a novel a million years ago called straight on till morning. Mm. That is a, a horror fantasy hybrid, uh, riff like portal fantasy horror Peter Pan riff. Basically it's a coming of age novel set in the eighties with a, a portal horror thing with Peter Pan. That's neat. Brennan, jump in, buddy. Uh, one, of, one of the ones I really enjoyed actually rereading because the, um, uh, the abduction door in, uh, that, that was originally in uh, Mark Morris's New Fear, that was the first story I ever re- read by you. So it was cool to kind of revisit it. And I loved the author notes because you talked about how uh, I, I maybe uh, – putting words in your mouth, paraphrasing, but how you kind of get carried away with a little idea, like the door in the back of an elevator. <laughs> and, you know, I, I love the, there's, there's almost like a, a childlike innocence to that too. being, you know, you said you're a 54 year old man and being able to get carried away by this germ of an idea and just let your imagination take you away to the most horrible places so I, w- I wonder if you could talk about it you know your process in in short story or even novel writing if it's the same in regards yeah. to that i mean it everything is different i mean you know um you know novels come from all different kinds of sources um but short stories almost always come from um moments like that and, it, and I drive my family crazy because they'll say something, you know, and I'm the guy who always says, and then this awful thing happens. <laughs> so I'll take, you know, uh, you know, um, oh, there's like, you know, the, there's, oh, the, the puppy's drinking from the, you know, from the pond, you know, and I'm like, yeah. And then the Cthulhu monster comes out and eats the puppy. And then the puppy spreads it all over the neighborhood. And it's like the thing, you know what I mean? Or something, you know, I mean, so no matter what it is, my brain just goes there. Um, and I, I don't do it on purpose. It just like happens naturally. And I, it entertains me <laughs> and, and entertains my friends. And sometimes it entertains my family. But most of the time, they're just like, you're so wrong. You know what I mean? It's just like, because I'll take sweet things and make them awful, you know. Um, and that's what happens often with something like The Abduction Door, which is one of my favorite stories I've ever written, mostly because I never felt as malevolent as I felt while writing that story, like gleefully malevolent. <laughs> you know, I wrote that story really fast. And I wrote it with a grin on my face. Um, and, and I felt really like mwahaha, like twirling my mustache. Um, and it felt great. And usually writing 
short stories, writing novels. Jonathan Mayberry always talks about, oh, how much fun it is, how much he loves it. And I'm just like, fuck you. <laughs> you know, I was like, I-, I love you, but just like you make me crazy because for me and most of the writers I know, we really like having written and we love having ideas, but everything in between is a struggle. You know, it's, uh, you know, uh, it can be really, uh, uh, a, really a dreadful work experience, but sometimes you have a day or two that just feel great. And writing the abduction door was that for me. Um, but, but as far as the ideas, like, again, the abduction door, um, I was on an elevator and I looked over and I'd seen a million times. I'd seen one of those little uh, um, access hatches in the side of the elevator and never thought twice about it. <clears throat> um, and then I just thought, oh, and I think I might have been with uh, Jim Moore, but I was definitely with, with another writer maybe it was Tim, uh, Tim Levin, I don't know. But um, I said, uh, they said, oh, that door is kind of creepy. And I said, yeah, that's the abduction door. (laughs) Just like, and as soon as I said it, I went, oh, what if it really was the abduction door? And And that's always like, yeah, that's like, what if it really is the abduction door? (laughs) And it's like, I was on an elevator at World Horror or StokerCon or something with Jim Moore many years ago. And I was, um, I don't remember how I was, I was, so my, my favorite story like this is my, my novel Strangewood. And this comes back to what we we're talking about. I was being interviewed my, by my friend, Hank Wagner, about um, my upcoming novel at the time, Strangewood. And Hank was asking me where the idea came from. And I said, well, actually, no, it was about a different novel. And I was talking to Hank and we were talking about how I was reading Uh, Winnie the Pooh to my son, like every day. And I love A.A. Milne and I love Winnie the Pooh stories so much. And I said to him, but at this point, I've read it so many times and watched the cartoons so many times that I just want armed warriors on horseback to ride down into the hundred acre wood, skin them all and nail their pelts to trees. Oh my God. (laughs) And as soon as I said it, I went, oh, what, what if, you know? And I was joking. And, uh, and I think I was telling Jim that story in this elevator. And uh, we were talking about The Wizard of Oz and how you can mess with any children's story. And we said, uh, yeah, you know, like the, the tornado like comes through Kansas and instead of bringing Dorothy to Kansas, it dumps a bunch of Oz people into Kansas, only they're all vampires. Ha ha ha, how funny. And we looked at each other and we were like, we have to write that. You know, it's so common. I mean, Tim Levin and I came up with a whole trilogy called The Secret Journeys of Jack London in a similar conversation with like 10 people at a table and in a joke. And you say the thing and you just look at each other and you're just like, yeah, <laughs> that, that's something. We're going to do something with that. So, so many times ideas come that way. Occasionally it'll come from something I dreamed. Um, my novel Wildwood Road, the first four chapters of that novel are a dream that I had. Um, sometimes it's sort of on demand, you know, it'll be like, 
I tend to run across things online and I'll print up the articles and just keep them on my desk um, in a pile of other stuff. And then eventually I'll go like Ararat came from that. I had a, an article about archaeologists, which is the name for people who study and seek the ark, Noah's Ark, which is not I, real. I um, did not know that was a thing. <laughs> yeah. But I had this article about them. And for years, I mean, it must have been on my desk for 10 years. And one day I was, I, I don't remember what it was, but I looked at the article and I went, oh, and I kind of had this idea of like, what if there's a demon in the ark? What if they find the ark, but there's a demon on it? And that's where Ararat came from. And, um, you know, I don't know. There's just all different places. And a lot of times I'll have ideas that are only part of something, you know, like they're partial ideas, but not a whole thing. And then eventually you're like, um, the, eventually I feel like, uh, uh, you know, a character in one of the science fiction movies where like where Tony Stark is putting together his new armor, <laughs> you know, and I'll, I'll get one piece and I'll go, Oh, you know what? If I match that piece with that piece, and then I pull in this other idea I had and these other two things that didn't have a home. And that's where Snowblind came from. Mm. It's like five or six different ideas that all kind of, you know, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, they've been waiting for each other all along. These these characters <laughs> and pieces, you know, so. What about when you're collaborating, when you're in the middle of it, beyond the idea of however it starts? I know it's different probably for each person, uh, different is. for tie-ins compared to um, original pieces, but take that, take this any, any direction you want, but write in your own story, whether it's for a novelization or tie-in or original story of your own, how does that differ from working with someone? So this is going to sound so obnoxious, but um, the the writer Moliere um, once said, writing is like prostitution. Um, First, you do it for yourself. Then you do it for the money. And then finally, no, wait, first, you first, you do it for yourself. I've fucked it up now. I don't remember. (laughs) I can't remember the order, but it was something like first you do it for yourself. Then you do it for a few friends and finally you do it for the money. And I think it's actually like the opposite. Like in the end, you do it for yourself, I think. Um, But when you're doing a collaboration, your audience is not you and it's not the reader. It's your collaborator. always (laughs) right fair so that's what's different about it you're not writing like when you when you're writing you're either thinking about what entertains you or what you find interesting or what you think is cool you're like oh that'll be good or or whatever um or you're thinking about the end user you're thinking about the reader and what their experience is going to be how you can mess with their heads right um but in collaboration you're just entertaining the person you're collaborating with and, and so I always say that, you know, writing is a solitary occupation and I'm not a solitary person. Over time, that's become a bit of a lie. It used to be true. Um, I'm definitely becoming more solitary, not just because of COVID, but because 
of me. I don't know why. Um, but I still love to collaborate. Anybody who thinks, anybody who hasn't collaborated might think, oh yeah, that's great. You're doing half the work. It's actually not even close to half the work. It's way more than half the work. Sometimes it's more work, even though you're only writing half of the finished product, the effort and the thought and the editing and the, the process is time consuming. And, uh, um, you know, it is different with each person. It can be really fun, but don't ever collaborate with somebody you don't like and don't ever collaborate with somebody whose work you don't already admire. Um, and it's weird because I've done so much collaboration that there have been people who've come to me who I don't really know or haven't really read, like to say, you know, you want to collaborate on something. I'm like, I, I, no, thank you. I appreciate that. But like, that's not how it happens. That's not how it works, you know? Cabino <laughs> uh, gave me some good advice earlier this year. And he said, the higher up the ladder you climb in this industry, the more shit you get from people from angles. I'm paraphrasing. The more shit you get from unexpected angles. <laughs> and it sounds like you got enough to fill multiple books. Yeah, but you know, what's really interesting is I was having this conversation with Bracken the other day. I feel like um, because I'm really vocal, um, sorry, hang on one second. Um, because I'm, I'm really vocal, um, I feel like it's sort of self-selecting in a way. Um, it's like King gets a lot of shit uh, because in many ways, historically, he has invited it, you know, it's sort of like, you know, when you're, if you read the old, you know, Brian came out onto the scene and established himself, not only with his ability and with his stories, but also with his persona. Brian Keene, right. For those that aren't familiar. Yeah. Brian Keene. So gotcha. he came out onto the scene and he was like, I'm Brian fucking Keene. <laughs> um, and I tease him mercilessly about it. And now that he's older, he's also getting a little bit. Um, he and I are exactly the same age. We're both 54. Um, but he basically threw down a gauntlet. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it was like, it was like, you know, it was like being a gunfighter in the old West. You know what I mean? <laughs> like if you've won a bunch of gunfights, everyone's going to want to fight you. Right. I, I read his book, uh, end of the road. And I listened to his, I listened to his show still. Yeah. Whereas I tend not to get into fights. Um, I tend to just, um, you know, make short work and move on. Mm. And, uh, I also, when I say self-selecting, I'm just saying like, uh, the kinds of writers who tend to start that shit also tend to usually be uh, MAGA hat people. Yeah. Um, and those guys uh, don't follow me on social media. <laughs> it's <can't> self-select. <laughs> <self -select. laughs> I'm, I'm really, I'm really vocal. I'm really, like, uh, 
aggressively progressive uh, and argumentative. And so what I love is that 99%, this is not even an exaggeration, 99% of the time when there is some drama in the horror community and some bad actor has appeared and everyone's sort of pissing and moaning about the behavior of this always a guy, well, almost always a guy, occasionally there's a... uh, a female writer involved. Um, I'll go and check to see if I'm friends with them on Facebook or if they follow me on Twitter. Almost never. And half the time it's somebody I've already blocked. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and it, I, it makes me happy actually, because I'm just like, look, you, you were a piece of crap already. And, um, you know, so yeah. You're a barometer. Um, I, I do see yeah. that on Facebook where I think people accept friend requests and I've learned from other people being vocal about it. I'm, I'm selective on Facebook. Um, Cause I see that shit where it's like, Hey, here's a screenshot of some super racist shit or, or something mm-hmm. extreme. They said, and people are surprised that they're friends with them, which tells me that there's a lot, a lot of people tend to accept, yeah. I mean, so. it, it happens, but you know what I tend to do is I just look at who else they're friends with. That's fair. You mm. know, like who, who, who are our mutuals? Not do we have mutuals, but who are those people? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't know, it, it just goes from there, but I, I don't know, man, I feel like horror, uh, the horror community has always had its share of ignorance. But by and large, the horror people tend to be really big hearted, really kind, thoughtful, um, because so many of us are broken already. Writers in general, like, you know, you could take a survey of writers, and, you know, <laughs> mental health check on writers and writers in general. Yeah and to be broken people already, but horror people, I think even more so. And, and so you'll find my agent always has said, like he represents uh, all kinds of writers um, and like literary writers and writers of all genres, nonfiction writers. And he said like of all of them, and he's been doing this for decades. He said, horror writers are always the kindest, give you the shirt off their back, and they make the least money. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. So that so so that's the that's the dichotomy, right? It's just so mm-hmm. strange. Um, but I'm proud to be a horror writer. I'm proud to be considered part of that community. Um, and it's sad because I've talked to some writers, um, generally uh, young women who've had difficulty with people in the in the community, and I just want to clear off like all the because there are a lot of shitty men, you know what I mean? just want to like clear off the shitty guys and just say like, you know, but the weird thing is if you look around, most of those guys that I would consider as part of that category uh, aren't people they should be bothering with anyway. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's true. They're yeah, you gonna, can tell. They're not going to help you. They're not going to lift you up. They're not going to give you positive feedback. They're not going to make your writing better. Then, you know, so, you know, um, I don't know. 
I just want to say one more thing about Brian. It is entertaining at times, obviously depending on what it is. When because he go he he holds back nothing too publicly. When he dukes it out with some guy that I'm not sure most of us know, and it's it's almost always a guy, like you said. But it is entertaining at times because I wouldn't want to piss him off. <laughs> yeah, I try to piss him off, but. Um, <laughs> But no, you're right. I mean, but the thing is, look, I just feel like, um, and all love to Brian, um, but I just feel like uh, do what you need to do and and that's fine, but I would just block that person. Yeah. Life is too short. Uh, Like, I don't have to, the people who are are worth blocking are not worth arguing with. You're not going to persuade them. They're trolls. They're not going to, you know, they're, they're, they're not there to uh, have a, 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 an open conversation about anything. Um, mm-hmm. But I think like, and, but you look around and like, what is the horror community? And I feel like the last two years have been redefining the horror community in really, uh, really exciting ways. Like mm-hmm. great, uh, you know, like I just look around and like, who's coming through? Stephen Graham Jones has been writing amazing horror fiction for years and years, and he's finally getting his due. Um, You know, uh, Sylvia Moreno Garcia has written amazing books and suddenly with Mexican Gothic, she's, she's coming through. She's a star now, you know? And I think, excuse me, we're going to see more and more of this. And I think it's fantastic. Um, And there are people I want to see like, you know, uh, I know the horror community, you know, loves Mary San Giovanni um, and she's been writing for decades, mm. but I still feel like Mary doesn't get her due. No, she doesn't. Mary, yeah. like, I just feel like I, I, I tease Mary and I tell her she's the uncrowned queen of horror. Yeah. You know, because she <laughs> hasn't been, she hasn't gotten the recognition she deserves for uh, the level that she plays at, you know, her and, I'm kind of biased. Ronald Kelly. Those are two yeah. that they've been doing it for decades. Yeah, I agree. Yep. Mary's a sweetheart. She's super smart. Um, and she's a good writer. And um, yeah. How do you change that though, man? Like how I am curious about that. Cause I see younger writers um, sometimes I don't know. And they, and no shade their way, but they have this explosive success and there's, film options and a lot of general public fame um, comes sometimes with that. But then like Mary or Ron or other, a bunch of others, uh, they've been doing it for decades. How did, what, what would your suggestion be? Dude, you know what? Nobody does it the same way. No one. Um, But you have to look back and like, look at, um, I was having, I keep like, I'm not even going to say, I was having a conversation with another writer earlier today. It's been a busy day of, of phone calls and things for a variety of reasons. Um, and I was talking about how over the course of my career, I've been able to maintain a career because I've diversified what I do so much. I write comics, I write scripts, I've written video games, I've written tons of novels, I've written all kinds of stuff. Um, but I've still never had a breakthrough novel a breakout novel ever. And so many times in my career, 
I've been, I've had, you know, an editor or my agent say, Oh, this is going to be your breakout book. This mm. is going to be the book that, that does it. And, uh, and it still never happens. And so my, my sales history is, is very roller coaster. You know, I've had, I'll have a book that does pretty well. And then a book that does terribly. Then a book that does well and a book that does terrible. Like it's just, it's been crazy. Um, so finding a way to get a plateau to reach a level is, is a mystery. It's, it's, you know, to me anyway, but everybody does it differently. And I have to say that, you know, I look back and I talk about, um, even though my family struggled when, when I was a kid, uh, we lived an outwardly comfortable middle-class life and I was white and I was a guy. Right. So, and because of my family, my, my parents were divorced, but my, um, my dad went to college, my aunts and uncles went to college. So because of that, I was able to go to college and I got financial aid and I got loans and I did whatever I needed to do to do that. So, and I had creative writing teachers that taught me through that whole time. And that experience led me to meet Craig Shaw Gardner, who told me about Nikon. And my wife was my girlfriend at the time, paid for me to go to my first Nikon because she had a job and I didn't at the time. That's cool though. And yeah. So, so the thing is like, if you, if you look at that stuff, I already had a bunch of advantages that a lot of writers, because we find, right, especially in the horror community and in the crime writing community, but mostly in the horror community, you have lots of writers um, who didn't have those advantages, right? So everything is a step. That's why I say social media is one thing, but if you have the ability to go to a convention, which again, if you have no money, traveling to a convention is very difficult. Even if the convention's in your town, going to convention is very difficult. But go for a day if you can. You know what I mean? Just like it's, uh, it's doing that. It's getting to know people. It's getting people to read your stuff so that they can go, hey, that person's actually really good. You know, um, because there are lots of people who have gotten attention um, who I haven't read yet. But one of the reasons that I, Jim Moore and I, a few years ago, did an anthology called The Twisted Book of Shadows. And I had edited a bunch of anthologies prior to that. Mm -hmm. And all the anthologies I had done, in order to sell those anthologies to mainstream publishers, I had to give them the list of contributors. So my ability to make space for people whose writing I was not familiar with or for people whose, write, whose names would not resonate with the publisher was limited, right? All of those, I had to have at least five New York Times bestsellers and I had to have then the rest of them had to be, uh, a good chunk of them had to be recognizable horror names or genre publishing names. And I had a little bit of room for people who were um, lesser known. And it drove me crazy because, you know, what Mark Morris does is great. And he gives, always gives some space to open call submissions. Mm -hmm. But try, and that's how Charlie Grant always did when he did his anthologies. For me, Jim and I talked about all the time and I always bring it up. I just want to do an anthology where um, 
There are no spaces reserved for marquee names. We don't ask anybody in advance. Um, and, and everything is an equal playing field. Um, and we encourage uh, writers of color and uh, LGBTQ writers and uh, women who write horror to submit to us because so many editors anthologies will say things like, well, if they care about it, they'll find me. It's not up to me to police who submits to me. And yet research shows, the research has been done. You know, research shows that uh, a lot of writers who are not straight white men don't submit to certain venues, sort of most of these venues, because history has taught them they will not be accepted. So there is a self going on there. And so Jim and I were like, well, we want to do one where we tell everybody, look, we want you to submit. And we're not going to know who you are. We're not going to know what you look like. We're not going to know what your gender is. We're not going to know anything. And we had 700 submissions to this thing. And we read all 700 stories. Oh my God. <laughs> and we had, we had a, a board of other editors who worked with us Linda Addison, Rachel Deering, uh, uh, Kale Pereira, um, and a few other people who also came in and read. Uh, not Lee Thomas, not all of them read, but Lee read all, all of the stories. Rachel Deering read all of the stories. Linda Addison read all of the stories. So oh God, um, it was a massive, massive undertaking. Yeah. And Matt Bechtel was the, was the man in the middle. He was the guy who, who took off all the names. He filtered all the stories to us. He was the only one who knew who wrote the stories. So we were able to distill it down to just uh, finding the best stories. Um, and one of the reasons why we pulled in other editors was we were like, okay, but we're still at the end of the day, like the stuff we grew up reading was still the sort of all one category of horror. So um, we just wanted to like, you know, have the net be as broad as possible. And what was so great about that um, was that I found writers that I never would have found otherwise, that I was super excited about, whose stories I freaking loved. Uh, and it turned out there were a couple people in the book who I knew at the end, but they weren't people whose I didn't know who they were when they submitted their stories. Right. Um, and so that to me is like, that's, what's exciting about horror now. Um, you know, and you have, I'm doing an interview with Josh Mallerman on Thursday night. And my favorite thing about Josh is that he's out of his mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> you know, I mean, just as a human and as a writer. Yeah. Uh, his imagination is like, uh, I can't even say it's like candy lane on crack. <laughs> yeah. I mean, his imagination is, is unfettered, let's yep. say, yeah. you know, and, um, and I love that. And I love, and that's what I just, I don't know. I mean, that's what I love about horror is you can do anything in it. And, um, and so that's why I'm like looking around, like you said, Eric LaRocca, I thought was great. Um, I read, um, I've also been catching up on writers whose work who've been publishing the last few years or not few years for a long time. Some of them 
who I had never read before. Like I had never read Ron Malfi before this year mm. and Ron's really good, you know? So it's, um, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's a great time to be a horror reader. It absolutely is. Yeah. I agree there. Um, Brennan, do you have, before we jump to the final thought segment, do you have one last question? I got one more, but I'd like if you go first. Uh, actually, before we jump to final thoughts, I want to make sure that we, uh, you know, speaking of books that, you know, are yes. going to launch you yes, off. Yes. That oh, that's <laughs> Yeah. Now, first of all, uh, have you ever had a Stephen King blurb before, or is this number one? Um, this is actually the third time. Nice. Um, but uh, it's each time has been really weird um, and wonderful, obviously. Um, uh, the first time was on my book, Wildwood Road. And I'll, I'll try to be succinct, which, as I'm sure you realize by now, I'm not good at. Um, <laughs> but uh, I ran into Peter Straub at a convention. I was talking to Peter, the, the, one of the nicest guys on earth. And um, we were talking about something. And I don't know, I don't remember exactly how we got to it, but he said something like, yeah, um, Steve's keeping an eye on you. Um, which was like, oh, what does the, what is that? What's Sounds going ominous. on here? <laughs> Sounds like a threat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, uh, but no, but it was like, but he does that. I mean, he's been, he, he's so unbelievably supportive to so many writers over the years. Um, and he, he reads so much. So he does sort of pay attention to what's going on. And, um, and that was really cool. And then shortly after that, I'd been, uh, uh Marsh Filippo, who worked in, who works for Stephen King, um, had been to Nikon a few times and Marsha said, um, if you were ever going to send Steve something to try to get him to blurb it, now's a really good time because the pile is really low and he just got back from a break or something. I don't remember what it was, but I sent Wildwood Road and I was sitting at my desk one day and uh, the phone rings and I'm not going to try to imitate his voice, but he said, Hey, Chris, it's Steve King calling. And because I've been such a fan of his, as so many of us in this business are, since I was like a little kid and everybody in my family knows it, my friends know it. I was literally on the verge of going, fuck you. Because I just assumed <laughs> it was somebody messing with me. And I literally went, like I had a moment. I was like, oh yeah, wait, we, I sent him off the road. What if it's not somebody messing with me? And it wasn't. It was him, and um, and it was crazy and weird and and surreal and all of those things. And he called to basically say, "I just wanted to let you know I'm reading the book now, and I'm going to blurb it." This is before social media. Um, and then he blurbed Snowblind, which was amazing. Uh, so kind of him. Um, and then wrote a Bones. Uh, which thrills me because uh, I think this is the first time he said it's great. <laughs> so, and he loved it and all that. So I think he, you know, he, I think he really liked the other two, but, but this one, he seems to be in particularly uh, 
high on, which made me so happy. You know what I mean? It's like, um, you know, I, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to like express what it means. You know, I think it's like, if you're like a new, a new musician, uh, and, and when he was alive, you were to play for Prince and Prince went, that was great. <laughs> You'd be what, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. So it's, it's great. And, and again, weirdly, like I think Rhoda Bones, um, Rhoda Bones is a, is a change up in many ways for me. It's, it's familiar in the sense of that the atmosphere is similar to sort of Ararat and Snowblind. I love writing horror stories set in cold um, and, and difficult climates, but um, it's short. It's, it's uh, really trimmed back. Um, I went through and cut the shit out of it before I turned it in. And um, it's, I don't want to give anything away, but it's got a lot more of the sort of folklore uh, DNA in it than I usually allow myself. It's stuff I love, but I don't allow myself to get that far into it. Um, yeah. I was going to say, there's a lot, there's a lot on the back nine here that I don't think people are going to see coming <laughs> after reading the first half of the book. Yep. Um, and, and you know, it takes place. I loved the um, the whole idea of the setting is that it takes place on this road in Siberia that, uh, you know, Stalin forced his prisoners to build the road and it is, you know, basically paved over their bones. So, I mean, all, all automatically. Hundreds, you got hundreds of thousands of people. Yes. Yep. And, and again, this is a real place. This is what, you know, a lot of people are probably not going to realize it's real. Holy shit. Um, the road of bones is a real place. Hundreds of thousands of people died building it and their bones were just plowed under the permafrost um and everybody's knowing that probably people are going to expect like a zombie uprising but there's nothing like that in the book so uh that's that would be the easy way to do this story and that was not the story that i was telling um you know i love writing stories set in places where people should not live <laughs> you know like, why do you live there? And I, I mean, again, I know that most of them are born there and, and this is what they know and this is their home. Um, and so to them, that's, that's what they know, right? But um, it is maybe the most forbidding place on earth um, to actually live. And, and I thought you did such an awesome job setting up that with, uh, with the two main characters, Teague and Prentice, where you... <sighs> At multiple points, you set up this really nice um, just idea that there is no margin for error out here. If you don't, if you don't have enough gas and your your car dies, you're fucked. You're dead. You know. Right. And there's Unless and there's by no some miracle somebody happens to come along. Mm -hmm. If you run out of gas or your battery dies on the road of bones in winter, yep, you're dead. That's it. Yeah. You're, you're done. <laughs> so, so, I mean, if you forget and shut your car off when you stop <laughs> and it's not in a, in a garage, you're dead. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like, it just can't, it's the coldest inhabited place on earth. Yeah. Um, I just don't, <laughs> it's, it's amazing to me. It's not like, look, people live in Los Angeles 
where eventually the big one is going to put that part of the country in the ocean. Um, and even crazier, people live on uh, Santorini, one of the Greek islands, um, is on the rim of an active volcano. <laughs> right? So the, 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 the town is a beautiful place to go. It's a, it's a stunningly gorgeous setting. Um, in the Mediterranean Sea, in the Aegean Sea, but it's like, but it's an active volcano. Pompeii. You, you choose Pompeii too. What's that? It's Pompeii Act too. Yeah, and so the but but at least it's beautiful and warm and 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 pleasant and you know until like, it's too warm. Right until it's too warm, but but up there on the Kalima Highway in the winter time. Like, I don't, you know, and again, but it's, that's a privileged thing too. Like, you know, many of those people couldn't leave if they wanted to, but they certainly could go somewhere a little warmer, probably. I don't know. Um, but continue. I'm sorry. I get off on. I told <laughs> no, you. no, I actually have a question that has very little to do with the actual story of the book, but still yeah. my curiosity has peaked. Have you ever had a reindeer burger? Because you make them sound absolutely delicious in here. <laughs> uh, I have never had a reindeer burger. Um, I have had a bison burger. Mm. Um, but I I think that there probably aren't very many places on earth that you can get a reindeer burger. Probably maybe in like Finland and, you know, mm. I assume, you know, but, uh, but no, when I write about... Um, foreign locations that I have not visited because I've had knock on wood, the good fortune to visit a lot of places. Um, I've never been to Siberia. I have been to Russia, but I've never been to Siberia. Um, one of the things I always research is what people eat casually. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, like I wrote a trilogy of young adult horror novels called the waking set in Japan. And one of the things I really wanted to know is like, if you're at the beach and you want a snack, <laughs> what do you get to eat? You know what I'm saying? And it's stuff like that that always fascinates me. And it's those details. When I wrote Ararat, I've never been to, um, I've not been to Turkey. I've certainly not been to Mount Ararat. But I did a bunch of research and I was interviewed by a couple of the national uh, newspapers in Turkey. And both of the journalists that I talked to assumed from the get-go that I had been, I'd spent time in Turkey. And that's the greatest compliment ever. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, like, I've never been there. I've always wanted to go. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, so I've never had a reindeer burger, but I want one. There's like a, some sort of like cheddar spread on it, or maybe I'm misremembering, but it's yeah. damn good. It's uh, yes. I, and that's, that specific description of what's on that burger and how it's made is from a restaurant that's <laughs> along the Kalima Highway. My sister-in-law has to go from, sometime or not. My, my sister-in-law is from Siberia, so I'm, I'm definitely going to ask her about that. So that's yeah. weird. I've never even, <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Well, um, go, listen, if you go in the summer, mm -hmm. uh, you only have to worry about the mud on the Kalima Highway. Like, <laughs> it, it gets quite warm, actually. Uh, people assume that it's cold that way all the time, but it's not at all. Hmm. Brandon, uh, I don't want to cut you off. Anything else on this? I was just going to, is there anything else you want people to know about the, uh, about the book? It comes out in January, I believe. 
uh, Road of Bones is out January 25th from St. Martin's Press. Um, with the supply chain issues that we're facing, there have been these, uh, uh, a lot of people seem to think that it might be difficult or might be time consuming if you don't get it the first time around. So I suggest that if you're interested in the book, you pre-order it from your favored bookseller. Um, and with any luck, that's an independent bookseller or uh, you know one of our, our wonderful chains. Um, but if you'd like it signed and or personalized, you can order it from Copper Dog Books in Beverly, Massachusetts. And uh, they're offering it. Uh, you could just put a note when you when you order it that you'd like it signed or personalized, and uh, and they can hook you up with that. So Copper Dog, Copper Dog Books, Books in Beverly, Massachusetts. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna add that to the show notes. Um, I wanted to just ask: New England has so many more because I've only really dove into the independent side of things a few years ago. Um, I didn't realize how many writers were in New England, uh, Massachusetts specifically. I moved away there five, maybe six years ago now, 2015. Holy shit. It's almost been seven. Um, and I grew up, I don't know, 20 minutes away from where Brighton lives now. So I didn't meet, any anyone that was a New England writer until after I moved 300 miles south of everybody. Um, I'm originally from Bridgewater, so I'm not too far from a lot of you guys. I'm just curious as far as if you want to make a shout out, if you have anything specific to say, what, how do you feel about, because the way that going back to Keen, he would always talk about all the writers in the Pennsylvania and New Jersey area, which I, I didn't know about some of them until I heard about them through him. So for those that might not be familiar with some of the writers, you've mentioned James Moore. We talked about Eric Baraka, Bracken, uh, Izzy. Um, yeah. I mean, the first person that jumps to mind is Eric Nunnally, who I think is, um, there are some writers who are just waiting to get up to bat, you know, for real. And yeah. Eric has put out, several really, really good books. Um, but I'm just waiting for him to finish a couple of things he's working on now. Um, I think he's terrifically talented. Um, How you know, and it's it hard because also you're promoting your friends, you know, yeah. um, you know, like Trisha Wildridge, I think is really talented. Um, my buddy, Tony Tremblay, uh, is also he hates when people say it but we all say he's the <laughs> nicest guy in horror um you know and and again you know there were, i'm trying to think who else is around here we said eric laroca paul tremblay uh paul well paul doesn't need a plug right <laughs> um, <laughs> paul deserves a plug but he certainly doesn't need one i'm just trying to think yeah. of like uh you know uh, because of covid we haven't done it the last two years but previously we've done five or six years in a row we had done the new england heart new wait Merrimack Valley Halloween Book Festival yep. um, that I founded, I guess, in like 2014 or something like that. Can't remember now. Um, and that's great because we bring in people who you don't, you don't pay for table space. 
um, and you come in and you might be sharing a table with, um, you know, somebody who's got way more history, uh, way more established reputation in the business than you have. Mm. Um, and that's what I love about it. I love the fact that you can have certain names that bring people in. Um, and yet then we have like Larissa Glasser, we have, um, did I mention my buddy, Kat Scully? Not um, yet. Yeah. It's got to throw a name Kat out there. Scully. Too. No, we ha- there's so many people that you can come in and you might meet them for the first time and you'll pick up their books because you came in for Brian or you came in for Jim, or you came in, we have Jennifer McMahon, who is a massively talented writer, friend from Vermont. You came in for Jennifer. We've had Joe Hill. We've had um, uh, Josh Mallerman. We've had Grady Hendricks. We've had uh, Catherine Valente. Like we've had all these people who are phenomenal writers, but basically they're our bait, right? (laughs) They love coming, but we bring them in um, in a way, because they, well, we help the library too, because all sales, the library gets about 10% from the writers. Oh, nice. Um, but then they come in and they see all these writers they've never met before, you know? And, um, and I feel like that is the best space. It's the best use of one of these kinds of events. Mm. It's free to come in doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't cost the writers anything. Um, and the library loves it. And I just love the event so much because it's like the happiest day of the year for the writers and for the readers, you know? Um, so yeah, man, New England is, uh, Jim moved to Maine. He used to live right here in Haverhill where we live, Hmm. but he moved to like four hours North of here. And um, I've not quite forgiven him yet, but uh, <laughs> I'll I'll get around to it. Mike Clark's another one um, that I've not met Mike yet, but he actually lives. I think he lives here in Haverhill too. He, yeah, yeah. Um, um, he he's a real nice guy. I met him at Scares. Uh, yeah, just a down to earth guy. Um, Rob Zombie is from Haverhill too, I believe. His parents that still. Never, I've never met him. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool though, man. That'd be bait. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, man, we've been talking for close to two hours. So if it's yeah. all right with you, we're gonna go to the uh wrap up section. Absolutely. Okay. Um start with what are you currently reading? And you've already listed a bunch. So if you got what am I else, currently reading? I'm currently reading uh, Red Widow by Alma Katsu. Oh, how is that, man? Uh, it's great. Alma's Alma's fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. Hugely talented. Again, like sprang on the scene. Had written two or three novels, I think, prior to The Hunger, and then just busted right through. And um, but Red Widow, a lot of people who've read her horror don't really know that Alma was a CIA agent. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so Red Widow is her first espionage novel and it's all sort of, uh, it's got that all tangible feeling of what it's like, I guess. Um, so I'm almost done with that. I'm really enjoying it. And um, I just picked up my daughter. Uh, my daughter's 19. And so there are some books that we start occasionally to pick up to both read. Mm-hmm. And um, Kat, I had 
pick this up at Copper Dog. And Kat Scully was like, yes, I know her. She's so good. And I love this book, but I'd read the back of it already. It's Hannah Witten. It's called For the Wolf. I've seen um, that cover. My daughter before, just actually. finished mm. it. So I'm going to read it next. And then uh, um, I've secretly got uh, the first four chapters of John McElveen's next book. I've secretly got the first half of Jim Moore's Return to Horror, um, which people will be really happy about. Mm. Um, let's see. It's doing a lot better. Than, that's, that's excellent news to hear, man. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was rough. I mean, it was a, it was a long, hard fight and, uh, you know, he's still suffering from a lot of the side effects of, of the treatment for cancer more so even than the cancer itself. That's crazy. Um, but, uh, but he's doing much better and he's, you know, yeah. Happy to hear. We're actually finishing up, uh, by the end of the year, we should be done with bloodstained Neverland, which is the final book in the trilogy. And, uh, uh, and then it'll be out presumably next year in both German and in English. So, wow. Nice. Brandon, can I go first? Sure. So, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask that cause I, I want to beat you to it. Reading uh, only skip specter stuff at this point for the rest of the month. Uh, animals, Craig Spector and, uh, John skip. That's a uh, audio book. Listen to you're talking about, uh, the wizard of Oz story that you did. So for audio listeners, this is uh, Emerald, the Emerald Burrito of Oz by John Skip and Mark Lev. I don't know how to say his last name. Leventhal. I don't. I hope I'm not saying that wrong. And then John Skip's latest book, "Don't Push the Button." Oh, I can't wait to get that. Don't uh, push that button. <laughs> <laughs> it's excellent. It's full of. I. I'm not done with it yet, but it's short stories, essays, uh, two scripts, and. Just a bunch of other stuff. Malaman does the intro. Um, I can't really say anything else about it because it's... Well, just, that makes sense because it's one madman writing the introduction <laughs> for another madman. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so talking to Malerman and then talking to John Skip, both in... E- I've only talked to Skip in email and, and Messenger. It's the same person. They're very excited. Caplocks. <laughs> about anything and it gets you excited you're like i'm fucking tired but now i'm amped up skip, i don't know why I have, I have stories about skip we have they're like you're right it's always exciting to be with skip you, he always improves your mood no matter what um one of my earliest memories at a convention was at the world horror convention in friggin' hartford connecticut and probably like i don't know like 1992 or something like that 93 whatever it was like three o'clock in the morning and a really drunk, excited skip comes running into the lobby and grabs me and my buddy, Jose Nieto and a few other people. I'm pretty sure Poppy Bright was there. The now Billy Martin um, grabs us and like, you've got to come see this movie. I'm like Skip. It's like three o'clock in the morning. No, no, no. Come see this movie. And everybody had been drinking. So he drags us up into this, like one of the rooms where the panels were held and he had a, uh, a bootleg VHS of uh, what's the movie the the um, Peter Jackson movie brain dead. Is that what it's called? Oh, evil dead. No, 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 not evil no. dead. I can't think of it. I'll, 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 anyway. I mean, not evil <laughs> dead. Um, oh my God. 
Dead Alive? Dead Alive, that's it. Dead Alive, that is the movie, Dead Alive. He has has a a bootleg copy of Dead Alive, and he puts it in, and he's so, he's bouncing off the walls at three (laughs) o'clock in the morning to share Dead Alive with us. Um, And that's like, that is skipped through and through. Uh, At Nikon one year when there was a pool, um, he persuaded everybody to do synchronized drowning. So everybody was, they were, there were like 10, probably 15 people in the pool and at all together. And he was like doing it. So everybody would be synchronized as they would go into the water and begin to drown and like put their fingers up, like they were going under. And then they all came back to life as zombies and came out of the pool. Like, and this is just, just for shits and giggles. This was just to amuse Skip. Um, <laughs> A splatter yes, punk God. He is, he is. Always a good time. Wow. And one of the kindest people this business has ever seen. Follow that up, Brennan. (laughs) All right. I'll go back to the, uh, I'll go back to the other madman. Um, actually I forgot to grab it. I've got, I've been reading, uh, before bed every night. Um, uh, a little bit of, uh, Josh Mallerman's ghoul in the Cape, uh, the 780 page, uh, behemoth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everything we've said about Josh in this in this episode, the fact that he's a madman, that he's perpetually excited and that you don't even have to listen to an interview with him or anything like that. You can just get the complete and utter sense of that in his writing. It's I, I've never read a book by him that it's more present in than this one. Yeah. Uh, again, it just Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say also, again, the kindness of Josh Mallerman, the enthusiasm yeah. of Josh Mallerman, the level of support that he gives other writers, the same with Skip. Uh, I admire them both incredibly, but you're right. Ghoul in the Cape is batshit crazy. <laughs> and and I'm, that's what I'm interviewing him about on Thursday night. And, and the crazy thing about Ghoul in the Cape is like, it's a magnum opus about, America and the current state of America and what Josh hopes the country could be, uh, what we were all taught that it was a a sort of sadness and melancholy about it, but a hope, as I said, Mm -hmm. but it's also a crazy horror road movie. And, uh, and it, it's got, it reminds me in some ways of the talisman in some parts. It's like, what I love most about Josh is it's like he was born yesterday so that he hasn't ever been told you shouldn't do it this way or you shouldn't do it that way. Or here's the rule about how you create narrative structure for this book. And, and that won't work or this won't work. And the thing is like, he does whatever the hell he wants in this book (laughs) and it all works beautifully because nobody ever told him he couldn't. that's that's exactly how it reads like this is fuck it i'm doing it my way and there you're right Right. there's there's no doubt that it's you know it's got those elements of horror um but but it's also got this optimism to it you know i keep thinking of you know with the americana to it which is just ever present it just reminds me if uh, like if joseph heller tried to write as john steinbeck like and and added a little stephen king to the mix like this is what you get that's a barb. Um, or at least that's the closest approximation that I think you could make yeah. to come up against Mallerman. But no, it's yeah. it's cool. 
Yeah. So the other one I'm reading, we mentioned uh, Ronald Kelly. I actually just wrapped this up last night. Uh, he's got a five-part uh, Western series coming out uh, through Thunderstorm and Silver Shamrock. So this is this is book one, and it is a freaking hoot. Um, it's you know it's it's got that kind of splattery Western feel that's big right now, but it's funny as hell, mm-hmm. um, and it's uh, it's almost got this kind of like madcap uh, the, the you know antic uh, style to it. Um, I, I think people are gonna, you know, anybody who picks that up, you're gonna get that horror western that you know people that that's really big right now, but it's a little bit different. It it it, I think it's gonna find an audience. I really enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah, and again, like we all talked about it already. But coming back to Last House on Needless Street by Katrina Ward, hmm. uh, early next year, the sundial, sundial by Katrina Ward comes out. She's so good. Um, v Castro. I'm trying to think of like other people I've read recently. This year, Sarah Langan's Good Neighbors is mm, such that, a great book. That looks good. Yeah, it's really good. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm just like, you know, I know we're just you're. We're supposed to be saying what we're reading now. I'll shut up. It's it's been a good year. I no, mean, it's, it's been good, a crazy man. good year. <laughs> yeah, so good. Eric Laracas, uh Things have gone worse since we last spoke. Was followed by his first collection, which I wish it was longer because there's a lot of crazy shit that happens in that uh, that collection that he has. Oh, um, can I make one other recommendation nope. for upcoming Go books? For it. Yeah, man. Because this is the thing: it's like, so I get books to blurb, so I read something, but it's not coming out for nine months. You know, <laughs> um, so so a suggested pre-order from me. Uh, if you're a fan of Dan Simmons, The Terror, mm-hmm. um, or John Carpenter's The Thing, or my own Ararat, or anything like that, um, All the White Spaces by Allie Wilkes Ooh, um, is coming out. When does it say it's coming out? It's coming out March 22nd. Um, and it's a uh, it's a period piece in the Shackleton era of Antarctic exploration. Uh, about, was that like late 1800s? Uh, early 1900s, very early 1900s, I think. You have to go look. Okay. Um, but uh, but it's a very, very creepy uh, sort of slow burn horror about um, being haunted by grief and loss, but also ending up in a place where there's something that lured you there that wants to kill you. And... Um, I loved it. I just, I loved it. So Damn. that sounds awesome. It's, cla- it's classy <laughs> as hell, which I love. Yeah. That sounds really cool, man. Listeners. If you are interested in reviews, uh, some articles by guests, actually Eric LaRocca wrote one. Um, or if you want to check out our shop for some dead headspace merch, go to deadheadspace.com. It's all one word. Uh, final thoughts, Mr. Golden, anything at all final thoughts uh i don't know man final thoughts i watch too much tv how's that <laughs> beautiful uh mine are appreciate your time brandon i have been really uh, interested to talk to you for i don't even know how long it's been like i thought i've lived in new jersey for five years it's almost been seven so it's been a while appreciate that we can finally do this with you um it means a I lot appreciate it it's yeah, been man. fun and um, I'm hoping that Merrimack 
book fest happens Halloween book festival happens next year because that's I want to meet everyone cons are great that's free so especially if people can get there um, there's a lot of people that would go to that (laughs) I know that there was supposed to I mean this year I think people were going to come from all over so I think next year we're going to have a lineup like uh, you know this year we were going to have Victor Laval and Richard Chismar and and like so many people, I can't even think about it. And uh, so next year, it'll be even bigger. I can't wait. Brennan, final thoughts, sir? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to third that. I'm about a half hour down the road from uh, there. I was very much looking forward to it. So I I got my uh, booster vax over the weekend, felt like shit for three days straight, but Ooh. well worth it if we can, if we can put that on uh, next year. Um, exactly. if you know, every, everybody makes that happen. Um, yeah. Chris, we appreciate your time. I think I got maybe like halfway through my questions. So unfortunately that means you do have to come back at some point. S- well, listen, <laughs> again, you've got to have with your questions because I talk a lot and I apologize for that. I just, uh, oh, no way. <laughs> it's always been the case. And listen, since you brought it up, why don't we have our final thought for the three of us all be to tell everybody to get vaccinated if you haven't been vaccinated yet, stop being an asshole, care about other people and not just yourself and go get vaccinated. So we can all go back to normal and have conventions the way we used to. That'd be awesome. Love it. Perfect. Final thought. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> next episode is episode 127. It's a round table. Uh, second to last episode of the season. Uh, we're focusing on self-publishing with Sonora Taylor, Nick, Nico Bell, Mike Clark, and Tyler Jones. That airs next Monday. And as always, you have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking this. You are now leaving Deadhead Space. Is that a set of uh, Books of Blood behind you? That is the Books of Blood, yeah. Yeah. I love that that like um, kind of six-part edition that you have there. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful set. Um, I, that's my to-be-read bookcase, not shelf, basically. From not the bottom, but from there up, and uh, some of that stuff is I've read already, but I want to read again. And Books of Blood, obviously, I read a million years ago, and then again years later. But that's the beautiful subterranean press edition. <laughs> oh, okay. So uh, I decided that if I was if I was going to get that, I was going to read it again. So you got to love when your uh, you know your pile does gravitate towards being its own shelf. Yeah. <laughs> How deep does that go? How many books is that? Uh, in on the shelf? Yeah. Uh, it's it's in most. Yeah, it's basically too deep. That's a lot of books. Um, I love. But that. you know, I'll get there. Yeah, it shouldn't take I mean, too I'll, long. I'll die before I'll read. <laughs> so the problem is that 2021, I spent almost entirely uh, reading books to blurb, mm-hmm. uh, which we could talk about. But I, um, and I'm determined not to do that from now until the end of 2022. Not that I won't read anything to blurb, but I acquired probably for every book I read to blurb, I think I acquired four. Sounds about right. (laughs) And that I can't do that.